Come on, come on. Good morning, y'all. Have a seat. Have a seat. Hello, hello. Good morning. My name is Glenn. Serve as one of the pastors here. Welcome to City Light Bennington. So glad you're here. You know, um, today I'm thrilled because we begin a new journey as a church family. Uh, it's a new year. We're going to do a new thing. We're going to go through a new book of the Bible. If you're new here, a warm welcome to you. Our normal mode of operation is to preach and teach through books of the Bible. We start in chapter one, we go till we're done. And among several things, we are a Bible teaching church. Uh, we believe in the full revelation and truth of God's word. All the 66 books of the scriptures, our Bible, it's precious to us. We cherish it. We trust it. Uh, it's living. It's active. We are dependent upon it. And in fact, by way of introduction, um, I just, I want to tell you a few things about your Bible, a little Bible primer before we jump in. Um, listen, it's the highest selling book of all time, not even close. Uh, it's, it's on its way right now to three billion copies printed across the globe. It's been translated into over 2,000 dialects. In your Bible are over 31,000 verses. And if you actually took the time at what we might call a, a, a reading out loud pace, it would take you well over 70 hours to get through all of the scriptures. Um, listen, here's something really important. Your Bible tells a story. From the first book to the last, there is one unified story, and it has one main character, one subject, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God the Son, the Savior of the world, his first coming, his second coming, we are a Jesus-centered church. In fact, you can divide your Bible, if this is helpful to you, into five sections total. Your Old Testament, all of it, is preparation for Jesus the Savior. The Gospels, starting in the Gospel of Matthew, tell the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the manifestation of the Savior. The book of Acts is the proclamation of the Savior, the epistles, the letters that are written in the New Testament are the explanation of the Savior. In the book of Revelation, the book about the last things is the consummation of the Savior. It's all about Jesus, y'all. Can I get an amen? It's all about Jesus. In fact, um, this book, I just want to say, we have a saying, we've said it around here. I'm sure we've said it in our pulpit before. There's an old preacher, his name's Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, he said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Okay? So in this book comes all of God's best for us. All truth. Uh, in this book comes good news of this Savior. Uh, in this book we find its author. And in him we find all hope. This morning, we are going to take a journey all the way back. All the way, all the way back. We're going to begin a sermon series in the first book, the first chapter, the first verse of your Bible. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to the book of Genesis. If you have trouble finding that, I don't know how to help you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Page one, there you go. Genesis chapter one, we're going to be starting in verse one. Before we jump in, let me give you uh, an overview of this book. I think it's fitting when we're going to spend the better part of this year working our way through this book to sort of lay a foundation for it. So the title, Genesis, 
Uh, really, that comes from the Hebrew word bereshith, which means in the beginning. The author of Genesis is Moses. Moses, if you remember his story from the book of Exodus, which is the second book in Scripture, Moses is this amazing man of God called by God to be the, the, the front runner for the nation of Israel's release from captivity in Egypt. You remember the burning bush and the way that Moses' life started was that they were actually uh, killing newborn babies and his mom puts him into a basket and he floats down the river and somehow he ends up with Pharaoh's daughter. Um, And so he grows up and gets about 40 years of his life with Egyptian education. Then something happens that takes him out into the wilderness as a shepherd. He's a Midian shepherd for another 40 years. So by the time uh, Moses is authoring this book, uh, he's somewhere between 80 and 120 years old. Okay, so he's not young. Um, And what he would have been doing at that time is he would have been uh, leading the Israelite people through the wilderness. He would have received the law from Mount Sinai. Um, He actually ended up penning the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, This would have been written probably about 1,400 years before Jesus. The structure of Genesis, uh, man, it can be parsed out in many ways, but I just want to make it really easy for you. The first 11 chapters of this book are about the beginning of the human race. And there are really four key events that happen in those 11 chapters. This morning, we're going to discuss the first of those, creation. Then there's the fall, the, the entrance of sin into the world and its curse. Then there is the great flood with Noah. And then there is the dispersion of people from the land that they're in uh, to to places that are farther away in different languages. We'll get to that. Then in Genesis 12 through 50, you have the beginning of the Hebrew race. And really it's God's dealings with four key people. It's his dealings with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. One of the things that I want to answer this morning is the importance of this book of Genesis. Why is this book so important? A couple questions we could ask to kind of frame up the way we would answer that question is this. How do we appreciate this book? And what would we be missing if we didn't have Genesis? Let me just give you a list. We would be missing God choosing and preserving the nation of Israel. We would be missing the beginning of God's covenant promises to Israel that would eventually make their way to us we would be without the origins of all things and the beginning of all truth. Mankind, sin, marriage, government, nature, religion, salvation, language, sexuality, so much more. We would be without the scope of about 2,000 years of human history. Here's another thing. We would have no foundation for the rest of the Bible to rest on. If you don't know Genesis, you cannot understand the rest of your Bible. In fact, Genesis is quoted some 200 times by New Testament authors, way more than any other book. We need Genesis. We need to hear from God in this precious book. And so I want to begin our exploration of these verses by way of two words of encouragement. Okay, we're going to read Genesis chapter 1. If you've read Genesis chapter 1, you know there's some questions about Genesis chapter 1. How is this written? 
Um, is it poetic? Is it literal? You, you, there's questions like that that have to do with it. So I want to give two, two encouragements. Number one is this. The Christian faith does not demand that you leave your God-given intellect behind. Uh, faith and logic are not mutually exclusive things. Scripture is not afraid of your questions, and our observational and experimental sciences, our theoretical sciences, they are a great gift from God when used with reason. We'll certainly spend some time this morning engaging with some debates around these verses, but second is this, the book of Genesis is not a scientific textbook. It's a theological book. It's a worldview document Church, please don't miss the forest for the trees this morning, okay? This book is about God, and only about God. It's the story of God. It's about his glory, his power, the story that he begins to author at the creation of all things. So I want to pray together as a congregation before we crack open this first verse. And I'm going to pray over this whole year that we're going through the book of Genesis. Would you join me? God in heaven, you are the maker and sustainer of all things. You are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory simply because you are. God, humble us before your word. Don't let us trip over one another in our seeking to understand. Help us to see in your word you, your character your nature. Help us to understand that the same God that was, is, and will forever be. Amen. In 1925, uh, John Scopes, this is nearly 100 years ago, 24-year-old science teacher in Tennessee, he was charged with the crime of violating the Butler Act by teaching evolution in a public school. The presiding judge opened the trial by reading the first 27 verses of Genesis chapter 1. Fifteen days later, the jury deliberated, and for a mere eight minutes, that's all it took them, they found John Scopes guilty of teaching evolution. Uh, Until the mid-20th century, creation was taught in nearly every school in the United States. My goodness, that is not our present reality. In 2010, the Gallup organization reported that 16% of Americans believe that humans developed over millions of years without God's involvement. A 2011 study conducted by Penn State and published in Science Magazine concluded that 60% of high school biology teachers are reluctant to teach evolution, and in doing so, they, quote, undermine the authority of established experts and legitimize creationist arguments. Uh, Dr. Henry Morris, who was the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, said this, Textbooks everywhere proclaim evolution to be a fact of history which all educated people must accept, and this propaganda and pressure are extremely difficult to resist. But when one examines the actual evidence, he sees an amazingly different picture. The biblical accounts of man's creation have not been discredited at all, but simply rejected. 
Evolution has not been proved, but simply assumed. This is the great debate. Creation, evolution, big God, big bang, both. It's settled for us in this chapter, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created, it's a Hebrew word, it's bahra. It means out of nothing. It's where we get our Latin phrase that you may have heard, ex nihilo. Now, follow along with me. There are teleological arguments for God's intelligent design. Teleology is the study of design and purpose. It's about the obvious fine-tuning and irreducible complexity of all things in creation. We have dozens of medical professionals in our church whose studies of the human body have built their faith in God. Teleological arguments are suggestions that choices by God are the most reasonable explanations for so many observations in our world, down to the most minute, tiny, tiny details. Francis Collins was the former National Institutes of Health director, and I quote him saying this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we humans were coming. Hmm. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear forces, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. So additional to the teleological arguments, there are cosmological arguments for God's intelligent design. The basic argument is that all things that have beginnings have to have had causes. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Something does not come from nothing. The second law of thermodynamics, this is an accepted high law in science, is that when you have randomness, order cannot come from that without help, ever. And so, the cause must be spaceless, it must be outside of time, it must be uncaused itself, it must be powerful and church, so it is. Here are the atomic components of the first verse of your Bible. Time, in the beginning. Force, God. Energy, created, or action created. Space, the heavens. And matter, the earth. The first uncaused cause who is outside the bounds of this universe is our God. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Church, do we feel the gravity of this? Have you looked around at plant and animal life? 
Have you tried to look directly at the sun? Don't do it. You can't. (laughs) Have you watched it set or rise? Have you climbed a mountain or been to the Grand Canyon or stood on the shore of an ocean? Or have you looked out the window of an airplane? What is the fitting response of a person observing all that God has made? We find it in the eighth psalm. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Hallelujah. God be praised. So let's explore these first days of creation, starting in verse 2. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. There are some things I want to get out of the way here, because I think they will be helpful to equip you and us as a church to reason and defend against science uh, or alongside science, to show that it's not mutually exclusive from our faith. There are theories that exist about how long is a day in Genesis chapter 1. Maybe you've heard that question asked before. Uh, What is the age of the earth? Is it 4.5 billion years old? Some of us have wrestled with these things. I want to offer us some perspective here. There's some theories that are prominent. The first is the gap theory. There are many sub-variations of this theory, but in general, this theory proposes that the earth is old and that there could be millions, maybe even billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. The formless and empty state of the universe in verse 2 would give time for Satan and a third of the angels to rebel and for God to then recreate the world for man in verse 3. This is a theory that seeks to marry itself with carbon and radiometric dating and fossil records that seem to suggest an older earth. I want to offer some objections that are out there to this. It would support maybe a more literal interpretation of this first chapter. Number one is how fallible the science of dating can be. To read any clock accurately, we must know where the clock was set at the beginning. None of us were there. Also, we have to be sure that the clock has ticked at the same rate from the beginning until now. And radioactive decay rates could have been greatly increased or influenced at certain points in time. For example, during a worldwide catastrophic flood. Just throwing that out there. Uh, Geologic timescales and fossil records and so forth are highly dependent on assumptions and subject to error. The same is true of observations of the greater universe. We can see a tiny fraction of all that exists, and much of what we know is theoretical. There really are out there ample reasons to believe that the estimates for the age of the earth are inaccurate. Another objection to this gap theory is the idea that if something important had occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, God might have told us so 
in his word rather than leave us to speculate. And the last one is that Genesis 1.31, at the end of the chapter, says that God declared his creation to be very good. This is a statement that would be difficult to square with the theory that evil and Satan's fall happened in the gap because Satan is a created being. So, that's number one. Number two is progressive creation. This variation of sub-theories, but in general, this theory proposes that the earth is old and that each day in Genesis 1 is not actually a literal 24-hour period. Within this framework is the day-age theory in which day can mean something way longer. An age, an era, even millions of years, which means the days in Genesis 1 can have vast gaps between them. Some of the objections, excuse me, to this theory, which also appeal to a more literal interpretation of this text, include something very paramount. It's Scripture's testimony of death being a result of sin. So all the fossil records, all the death that would have had to happen before Adam and Eve sinned and the fall occurred and death entered into the world, it would undermine Paul's teachings in Romans. Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians about the effects of sin in our world and death being the most primary. The last is a literal biblical view, meaning just taking the text of Genesis 1 at face value, a plain reading, straightforward. This would propose that the earth is young, 6,000, maybe even 10,000 years old. And the way that people with this view would get there is they would take the genealogical record that exists in the Bible. You know the genealogical record? Those these are the generations portions of you. And so and so begat so and so. It's the stuff that when you cannot sleep at night, you flip open to that page and you just get to reading. And before you know it, it's morning, right? So we can use those to trace back 6,000 years from today to Adam. And the question that this view asks is not, could God do a bunch of things over millions or billions of years, but just what does it look like he said? Quite simply. If you just observe the text, even in our first few verses there, right after God called the light day and the darkness night, he says, and evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. The Hebrew word for day is yom. It's used more than 2,000 times in your Old Testament. It can mean something like an era or a season, but every time a numerical value is attached to it, it is a 24-hour period. Additionally, Moses, the author here, as a Hebrew, he had many other words at his disposal that he could have used to describe day, and for it not to mean a 24-hour period. Likely eight other words that he could have used, and he didn't use them. Um, on, on day four, God further showed that these were literal days by telling us the purpose for which he created the sun, moon, and stars. And it was so that we could tell time, literal years, literal seasons, and literal days. Two more. In Exodus chapter 20, God commanded the Israelites to work six days and rest on the seventh because he created in six days both the same word, Hebrew, yom. Furthermore, Jesus and the New Testament apostles seem to read Genesis 1 through 11 as a straightforward historical narrative. You might be able to tell just a little bit where I lean. Now, some of you, 
Um, you, you may be well-read on this sub, uh, subject. Some people in the room, right now, you are disciplining yourself to care about any of this at all, and that's okay. People all over the spectrum. The bottom line is this. This is an open-handed issue. It would be foolish to start a new church or go to war over the age of the earth. I just don't think that God is going to ask us on Judgment Day, were you old earth or young earth? <laughs> it's just not. Um, it, it's why Paul urged believers not to cause strife over things that are not detailed in God's word. We weren't there. God was. Let's continue in, in verse 6. We're going to move into the second day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. Don't you just love that line? God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called the space sky. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. It's here that we are introduced to some kind of separation of water. Water on the earth, water above the sky. We get into territory of a canopy theory here. That there might be some kind of theorized greenhouse effect because there's waters up above the earth and a vapor canopy could have covered the whole earth. And God created sky or atmosphere to separate these waters. And what this would have done in this theory would have made all of the, the, the climate across the globe tropical. Keep in mind, it wasn't until Genesis chapter 6 that it rained. In Genesis chapter 2, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Listen, there, there are massive dinosaur and, and woolly mammoth graveyards that have been excavated, and a lot of them at higher elevations. And it seems, looking back, that they would have been trying to escape a rising waterline, perhaps a rising flood. In Genesis chapter 7, all the underground waters erupted from the earth and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. And what happens after this flood? There were long lifespans before the flood of Genesis chapter 6, hundreds and hundreds of years. And these ages begin to reduce greatly after the flood resides. This is all simply food for thought. It's a reminder that we don't have to check our brains at the door of the church. Um, we don't have to do that. We, we actually, instead, can learn to defend the Christian faith in a way that's intellectually stimulating and in a way that guards and protects the authority of God's Word. Um, I want to transition us into the, the last half of the chapter by, by asking a question this morning. I realize that what we've done so far is we've just engaged a lot of subjects, we've talked a lot about a lot of information, we've tried to equip ourselves to think about these things in the right way, but, but let me just ask you, do you know this God? Do you know this God? The reason I ask is because I think it would be hard-pressed for any of us to give our lives away and surrender our lives and our will to a God that we don't really know that well. I remember doing campus ministry for years, and it felt like before a student would give their life to Christ, before a student would say, I'm going to surrender all that I am and have no known reserves before heaven, they would need to know this God. Who is he? What's he like? How did he create things? What, 
What's his attitude toward me? What does he think of me? What's his mind? And I think in Genesis chapter 1, we get some amazing, amazing, amazing pictures of who our God is. And I pray that this builds our faith. If you start in verse 9 with me, here's what it says. God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the waters seas. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. And God saw that it was good, and evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. I want you to pay attention to some words in the text of Scripture here. Anytime God said something, it came into being. Anytime God saw something, that is how that thing was. God makes a habit of separating things. In many ways, there is dualism in our world. Not everything is interchangeable in our world. God calls something, and that is its name. My goodness. And, and, and all the way through this, over and over and over again, as soon as God says something, what does it say? And that is what happened. This is God. God is all-powerful. Psalm 33, 9 and 11 says, For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. God's creativity is unmatched. Look at the world around you. It's absolutely brilliant. God could have done anything. He could have only made grass and beets for us to eat. He made so much more. Jehovah Jireh. I'm going to go home and have a steak later today. It doesn't come till Genesis chapter 9, mind you. But this was all his idea. Pay attention that God is judge. And his judgment is final. You'll notice that he saw that it was good. He declares goodness. How God sees something is how it is. Psalm 119, 160. The very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand together. Church, period. There's nothing that we can do in our intellect, in our flesh, in our sin as human beings to usurp the throne of God to redefine things that God said are true. What God says is. Our choice is to combat that or to be blessed by coming underneath it and living our lives in light of it. Verse 14. Then God said, Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. I'm sure you can guess what those are. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate the light from the darkness. 
And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. You know what's awesome about this passage? This day is the first time that God introduces the sun. (laughs) I think just to show how powerful he is, how ultimate of a life source he is, he's the only life source. God had things existing and vegetation and creation before there was light before the sun and the moon ever came into being how is that so don't miss this so much of creation already existed before the sun was created on the fourth day entire civilizations of people have worshiped the sun god preceded the sun he is an all-consuming fire he is all glory he is all light and in him there is no darkness at all In our future, in Revelation chapter 21, the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb, that's Jesus, is its light. Try to wrap your mind around this greatness. He's the goat. Try to wrap your mind around how amazing this is. This teaches us that our God is completely, utterly independent, totally self-sufficient, He don't need nobody. Doesn't need anything. He is eternal. He never had a beginning. This is our God. Verse 20. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures. We'll come back to that. And every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. This is the day that's tough for me because this is the day where God creates the scurries. In other translations, it's the creeping things that creep. Why the creeps, God? <laughs> Why do we need the creeps? None of us like the creeping things. Uh, let's, on that matter, let's just talk about this. Why, why mosquitoes? Why, why, why the opossum that I had to chase around my house? The, these are not my definition of beautiful things, they had to have come after the fall. Is there consensus here? You'll you'll notice in this section, just like every other section, you see the words of the same kind. Uh, Maybe in your translation it would say according to their kind. We see this 10 times in this first chapter. Listen, folks, there are hundreds of variations within a species. It's the same thing across vegetation, sea creatures, land creatures. There is no transmutational species. One animal cannot change its species over time and become something entirely different. God did not create it that way. It's according to its kind. It's of the same kind. It can certainly become a variation within a species, but macroevolution is simply not plausible. Now, there are so many questions that may linger in us that we want to pose to God when we read this first chapter of Genesis. Uh, Perhaps we need to review a question that God poses to us. I love this. In Job, chapter 38, 
when we're confused about life, when there's suffering, when we don't understand all the details of our origins, here's God's question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And this is followed by so many questions, a long series of, have you done what I've done? Can you do what I've done? And so here's what I want to do. I want us to look at Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to know something. If you believe what this says, if you believe that God created everything, the rest of your Bible becomes really easy to believe. If you believe that God created everything, this is the first place that you, Christian, have to exercise your faith. Only 630 words total in your Bible are devoted to the origin of everything. And to believe it is to declare that you are not an atheist, a pantheist, a polytheist, a materialist, a humanist, a dualist, a naturalist, but you are a person of faith in the one true creator, God. Hebrews 11, 3 says, by faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Right there in the text of scripture, by faith. Here's my question. Will you trust God's eyewitness account? Everything depends on God, comes from God, will give account to God, will return to God. Nothing in your life, make a list, nothing in your life makes sense unless it begins with God. We can hypothesize, we can speculate, we can theorize, we need concrete revelation from the one who was there. What a precious gift these words are to us today. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24, man, I love this. The people of God are undergoing persecution. And there's something that they appeal to in their prayers. Here's what it says. When they heard the report, this was of persecution, all the believers lifted their voice together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. In the middle of their trial, in the middle of their, in the middle of your trial, in the middle of your suffering, all you have to do is say, God, you are sovereign. You created the heavens and the earth, the sea, everything in them. That is who you are. You are able. I can trust you. It is the same God that we know today. Listen, the only honest outcome of a godless worldview is very, very dark. Bertrand Russell was a famous mathematician and philosopher, British, I believe. Um, I want to read to you what he said about the very thing we are dealing with today from a godless point of view. Bear with me here. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation 
of the unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. In other words, the soul can only feel despair when built on these truths. That man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Wow. We were not made for that kind of pitch black hopelessness. That is not our life. That's not our past. That's not our destiny. That is not what God has revealed to us. In closing today, I want to show you one last thing in this text. If you look at verse 26, we get to the creation of people. We're going to cover that a lot more in depth next week, but here's what we notice. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Uh, back at the beginning when it's of this chapter, when it's speaking of God, the word Elohim is used. That is plural. So right there in verse 2, you see God the Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters. Church, I want you to know God the Son is there as well. Our triune God has never not existed. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. There's been a long, talked about, studied atomic glue in our science. What is it that holds every atom together? Many theories abound. It is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. He, right now, is sustaining and holding all things together. And in the end, he will declare this from Revelation chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. What this means, church, is that Jesus, think about this right now in your life, Jesus is not a self-help guru. Jesus is not a wise, dead teacher. Jesus is not for you to get some morality points. 
Jesus is not a long list of things that we would love to make him into, including a feel-good shot on Sunday mornings. Jesus, no, 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 Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. And this God, this God crafted you together. He knit you and he formed you in your mother's womb. He knows your innermost parts. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, created, designed by someone. This God made you in his image. After his likeness. Look at verse 26. In our image to be like us. In our image to be like us. In our image to be like us. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 27. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. And all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. Look how generous God is. Just because, church. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Uh Uh-oh. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came marking the sixth day. When God creates animals, he elevates them above plant life. He uses the Hebrew word nefesh, which means the seat of emotion. That's why my daisies that are out in summertime in front of my house for like two weeks until they burn to death, they're not barking at the front door for water, okay? They're, they're, they're plants. But our animals have emotion, they respond. They have instinct. They, like the, a weeping willow is not named that because it's just crying all the time. Right here in this text, God takes that elevation and goes a million times more for human beings. Church, I just, I want you to know man is not an evolution of other creation. And because of this, you, my friend, our spirit. Deep in you is a spirit. It is eternal because it is fashioned in the likeness of a God who is eternal. And you will spend this eternity either in heaven or under God's wrath in hell. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Here's really good news this morning. Really, really good news. The same God who created everything to begin with. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. When God says that things are created according to their kind, that which is flesh cannot reproduce that which is spirit. God has to intervene. There has to be Divine intervention. We need the power of God to enter into our life and to bring life where there is no life. And he can do it. The same God that was there at the creation of all things is the same God today who brings us under conviction concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's the same God who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the same God who is that God 
who said, I will die for you. I'm God and I will die for you. I will put myself in your place to pay your sin debt because I love you. Will you receive my love and love me in return? Will you know me and walk with me? Will you trust me? I have a greater vision for your life than you do. God created all things. God can recreate all things. This is the greatest miracle happening in our world today. And don't miss this. God has gone to great lengths to tell you this story. He wants you to know this story today. So Christians in the room, be encouraged by how big and majestic and mighty our God is. If you've not yet bowed your knee to Jesus, is today the day of salvation? Would you trust that this God is the same God who can hold you, he can protect you, he can give you resurrection life, he can preserve you? Let me pray. God, we ask right now that your word would not return void as you promise. Build us up today, Jesus. Help us to be worshipers of you. We pray this in your name.